Welcome to Deep Tracks. The purpose of this podcast series is to get you to think about how this group of chapters works in conjunction with each other. So while it's great to look at each individual chapter and analyze one specific aspect, now we want to be able to look at human behavior within a um, dynamic system or an interactive kind of system. And so what we'll be looking at in this podcast series is thinking a little bit deeper, critically about how these chapters relate. In this first one, we will be talking about research methods, emotion and motivation, and social psychology. While these three chapters seem like they're isolated and not related at all, I encourage you to think for a minute how the three are interrelated. In chapter one, we were talking about research methods. In chapter nine, we talked about human motivation and emotion. And then in chapter 12, we talked about social psychology. Now, we focused a lot on research methods, and the reason that we focused a lot on research methods was because then we talked about research within motivation and emotion, particularly the facial feedback hypothesis. And then we also looked at a different type of um, research methods in social psychology. Social psychology employs a lot of experimental research. However, when we're talking about researching with humans, we also have to be conscious of our ethical considerations. And so looking at a couple of different research studies, the first one was Solomon Ash's conformity study. This was actually a great experimental research study design. He had a control group. He had an experimental group. He was manipulating how many people were um, around the person when they gave an answer and whether or not their answer changed. He manipulated um, whether or not the people answered out loud, and he found that there was a change with that one, with that variable as well. So we can very quickly look at this and say, this is a really good design, and we can show cause and effect because of this. So we can show through Solomon Ash's study that um, conformity occurs, that when there are people around, we conform our behavior. And so we can see a direct cause and effect relationship. Now, Solomon Ash, um, his research was great and fairly basic, but then Milgram and Philip Zimbardo were looking at questions of why. So oftentimes, the question that we're asking will guide our research. And when you look at um, particularly Philip Zimbardo's experiment, Philip Zimbardo's experiment was not really a research, an experimental research design. It's what we would call a quasi-experiment. He sought to set up an experimental design. However, in the process, he didn't have a control group. There was nothing really to compare it to. So it's really much more of um, even a correlational rather than an experimental design because he was looking at whether or not 
Um, his initial hypothesis in his research was whether or not anonymity, meaning stripping down, removing those personal aspects that we have, meaning our uniqueness, our hair color, our eye color, the way that we wear our hair, the clothing, clothing that we wear, if stripping that down and making everybody uniform changes our behavior. And so that's what he was looking at. Now, to have it be a true experiment, he should have had a control group, a prison in which the inmates didn't wear a uniform, the prison guards didn't wear a uniform, to determine whether or not behavior was really changed amongst the prisoners. Now, again, there's a lot of ethical considerations when we talk about humans, and that's one of the biggest downfalls of Zimbardo's study, is looking at the psychological distress that he created for these inmates. Um, another uh, downfall of Zimbardo's study was that it's a great example of researcher bias. Philip Zimbardo himself got so caught up in the experiment that he started acting like the warden. And his job was no longer of a researcher, but that of a warden in which he was really biasing his own study because he was feeding in to those social roles. And so even though he set out to experiment on one thing, um, his research kind of took a different turn. And what, what he gathered from the research was the power of that situation and the power of those social roles. So while his experiment wasn't a pure experimental design, it did, we were able to gather some research from it and gather some information from it. Now, is it as strong of a research design as Solomon Ash's conformity study? Not necessarily, because there's a lot of confounding variables that factor into it. Um, the other one was Stanley Milgram's shock experiment. Stanley Milgram's shock experiment, again, although it was lacking a control group, Stanley Milgram's uh, shock experiment was much more of an empirical uh or experimental research design in that he brought people in. They were told the same line from the Confederate. And then he wanted to see how they behaved with um, how, how obedient these individuals would be. So it's really important to understand research design so that when we look at these studies in social psychology that really um, are kind of a unique design of experimental design, we can see that we may not necessarily able be able to determine cause and effect, but a lot of them are gathering information about human behavior because human behavior is so complex. Speaking of complex human behavior, the other aspects that we address during this group of three chapters is motivation and emotion. But the reality is motivation and emotion don't operate in a vacuum. We are social beings, no matter how isolated you are, we interact with other individuals. And so social psychology and the influence of other people really influence our emotions and our motivation. And then on the flip side, our emotions and our motivation also influence our interactions. So we're going to look at each one of these sides. We're first going to look at how our emotions and our motivation may influence our behaviors and our behaviors for you know, when we're in group settings and around other people. 
our emotions are very powerful and our emotions coupled with our motivation can really impact our behavior. So let's start by looking at a key emotion. Fear is a key emotion. It's one of our primal emotions. It's um, very much rooted in who we are. And the interesting thing is as we go forward, one of the things we're going to learn is that fear, which is rooted in this part of our brain called the amygdala, which you were introduced to in chapter nine, the amygdala, uh, what it does is it stimulates production of hormones that will amp up our fear sometimes or in response to our fear. And the other interesting thing that it does is it actually can shut off some of our um logical thinking in our prefrontal cortex. So when we're in a really fearful situation, we actually have a diminished capacity to think clearly. And now these are like super fearful situations. Um, when, you know, you've been in a car accident, when you've experienced some major traumatic event, but fear on a daily basis can also drive our behavior. And so when I'm talking about fear, there's also some secondary fear emotions, things like um, uncertainty or apprehension or insecurities. So you may not be thinking about big threatening situations, but if you are just transitioning into the college atmosphere, you're a high school student, you are a recent graduate, um, maybe you have been in the college setting and now you're um, transitioning to a new college, or maybe you haven't been in the college setting for a number of years and you're going back to college. All of this is going to create this emotion of uncertainty and apprehension, not knowing what it's like, not knowing the expectations. And so then that emotion is going to drive a lot of our behaviors. And so you're not going to know what to expect. And in some situations, and people respond to their fear and deal, deal with their fear differently. For some people, their fear may make them come off as fake or aloof or weird or cold. Um, thinking about, you know, like uh, if you meet somebody and you're a little bit apprehensive of meeting them. You're in a new college situation. You're in a new setting. You aren't really sure what to expect. Oftentimes, some people will kind of clam up and become much more reserved. And so then when other people meet them, they immediately say, oh, I don't know. I didn't really like them. They were kind of cold and arrogant. They didn't really, they weren't really warm and friendly. They just kind of acted a little weird. On the flip side, to combat some of that fear, other people may become overly gregacious or um, as some people refer to it, they get um, when they get nervous, they get verbal diarrhea. And so they start telling you everything about themselves. And so that's also a way that our fear may change our behavior. It may change our interactions with individuals and change the way that we interact and respond with people um, because of that uncertainty or that apprehension. Anxiety is the same way. Anxiety is a form of fear. And so when we have that anxiety, it can also change the way that we interact with people. Um, anxiety can um, make people respond in maybe much more of a snappish way. Um, when um, working with individuals or working with um, individuals who have a lot of anxiety, one of the things 
that I like to talk about is how those interactions um, change the way that you interact with individuals. So if you have a lot of anxiety, maybe if you have a lot of social anxiety, you're fearful about going places and doing things. And it it's oftentimes conflicting for the person who's experiencing social anxiety because they want to go and do things and they want to meet people and they don't want to be isolated, but they're so anxious about the situation that oftentimes they can't respond. They can't go, they can't do anything. And if they do go, say maybe they've worked up the, the nerve to go and combat this fear, and then they go into the situation and they're meeting new people, that meeting new people may come off, they, their anxiety may come off as being cold or disinterested, like they don't want to be there. And so then they may get a response back from other people that is not favorable and is not easing their apprehension, but instead making their anxiety more. And a lot of that creates this kind of cycle um, effect where their anxiety was already great. They didn't get a good response from other people. And so then that makes their anxiety even more. And so it really diminishes the likelihood that they'll try to um, engage in these behaviors again. Fear is great at changing people's behavior. If we can create fear then we are very, very effective at changing behavior. Um, and you can look at, you know, historical events like um, Hitler. This is what Hitler did. He created fear in a lot of people and that drove them to change their behavior. So if you can make people afraid of something, then it, it's a good motivator in changing their behavior. Um, I mentioned another motivator though, I mentioned insecurities and insecurities are a form of fear, obviously not nearly as great, um, and but they can change our behaviors. So we all are insecure about something. We might be insecure about our height or about our weight, about our age, about our intelligence, about our athletic ability, our musical abil ability, whatever it is. And we may have securities that insecurities that last a lifetime, and you may have insecurities that come and go. So, you know, if you are um, auditioning for something, or if you're trying out for a sporting team, or um, maybe you know you're waiting to be inducted into some honor society or something of that nature. That may be an insecurity right now that you aren't good enough for whatever that event is. And so when somebody brings up that event or asks about that event, you may lash out. Um, you may try and diminish it. You may behave in a way that wouldn't you wouldn't normally behave. Um, a very common response is to downplay it and say, oh, yeah, I don't really care about that anyways. I don't really want to get into that. And that's kind of a protective mechanism so that if we are rejected, because rejection is also another emotional um, situation that might change our behavior. If we are rejected, then we can say, oh, well, I, I didn't really want that anyway. So it's not that big of a deal. And so it's really kind of a protection for our own emotions um, and for our own emotional state. But insecurities are also something that can drive our behavior. If you're insecure about um, making the team 
and um, somebody, you know, maybe somebody asks about, you know, how, how your audition or how your tryouts went, you may lash out at them and be like, I don't know, like, that's not, I, I don't keep up with it all the time. Again, that may drive your behavior um, and change it. Now, these are obviously just a couple examples, and they are some examples of some of our more negative behaviors. Um, obviously, anger drives our behavior as well. Happiness and sorrow can drive our behavior and change our behavior. Um, but, um, you know, loneliness is another big one. Loneliness will change our behavior dramatically um, and become very much a motivating factor. And that kind of gets into that Maslow's hierarchy of needs and our desire to belong to a group. Um, and this kind of now gets us a little bit more into social psychology, but that loneliness feature drives us to belong to a group or an organization, that loving and belongingness of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And so that may drive us um, towards a group. Let's look at the flip side though now and how people around us may actually change our behaviors. And they may change our behaviors for the good or for the bad. Um, again, happiness, if you're happy, it may motivate your behavior and change your behavior as well. So let's look at how other people around us may change our behaviors. So there's lots of great examples around us about how other people around us may change our behaviors. We can take something very small, like we mentioned about the insecurities. If there, are, if you're in a group of people, and maybe you're in a group of people um, that also play soccer, and you just went out for the soccer, soccer tryouts, and maybe you haven't even gotten the results yet back, um, and even though these people didn't go out for the same tryout, maybe they asked, and because you don't want to um, reveal your insecurities or you don't want to talk about your insecurities, you might respond in a way of, you know, anger towards your friend because uh, there's other people around and they're kind of putting you on the spot in that situation. And so other people around us can change the way that we respond. The other thing that other people around us can do is change not only the way that we respond, but also our emotions. For example, um, any large, especially a university or any university situation where the football team or the basketball team wins and the, the fans all storm the field, that's an experience where other people around you are now changing your behavior. In a normal situation, you may not storm the field. In um, a normal situation, I like to, I'll pick on Chapel Hill there, after a big basketball game, um, after, or after any normal basketball game, you wouldn't go out and just run down the streets and, and party in the street all night long. But when they win the final four or when they uh, win the big tournament, everybody is out in the streets partying. And that's an um, example of how the other people around us may actually change our emotions. Um, it may be a situation where you weren't even interested in basketball before, but now you're suddenly cheering for it. Um, or the same with football. All those fans that are in the football stadium aren't all interested in seeing the football game. There's some that just are there, 
but they become elated and happy when the team wins because there's other people around and everybody else around you is happy. You can see the same experience with um, mourning and loss, um, particularly among um, you know teenagers or young adults when they lose a friend and it's tragic. And all of a sudden, even people that may not have necessarily been close to this person or really known the person are really upset and sad. And they're really upset and sad because everybody else around is upset and sad. And so the group or the group dynamics can really change the emotional state. And this is, there's another great example of this, and this is with jury trials. Um, jury trials, when we're looking at um, juries, we have found that because of that group think and the cohesiveness of the group, as the longer the trial goes on and the more time these these people have to spend on the same jury together with the same people, they start to experience very similar emotions and very similar emotions towards whoever the defendant is. Um, and so we'll see that the people around us can really change our emotions, which then can also in turn change our behaviors. So there's a, a really intricate um, interrelation kind of dynamic that occurs between our motivation and our emotions and the people that are around us. I encourage you to stop and think when you experience situations where you're highly emotional, maybe you experienced, uh, you know, a lot of anger, or maybe you've experienced a lot of fear or a lot of sadness. What is the root cause of that, of that emotion? Are you experiencing that emotion because of an insecurity? Are you experiencing it because of fear of a loneliness? Are you experiencing it because the other people around you are experiencing it? Maybe it's happiness. Hopefully it is happiness um, or any number of emotions. And so we can see how other people in our environment can drive our emotions, but how also our emotions can drive the way that we respond and the way that we interact with other individuals. And then, like I always like to point out, your actions also create reactions in other people, which then will create a reaction in you. And sometimes it can spiral downwards. Hopefully it's spiraling upwards though, to make the other people feel happy and wanted and make the infectious emotion, the happiness and not anger or sadness.